0: InDefensive Plants is made possible by all of our wonderful patrons that support the podcast each and every month over at patreon.com slash Their monthly contributions ensure that InDefensive Plants can continue to bring you amazing botanical and ecological conversations each and every week. If you are enjoying this podcast and want to help make free science communication possible, consider becoming a patron. By supporting the show, you will receive wonderful kickbacks like stickers, producer credits, and access to multiple mini bonus episodes each month. Consider becoming a patron today and help spread the love of plants around the globe.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the In Defense of Plants podcast, the official podcast of indefenseofplants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How's everyone doing this week? Now, many of you have probably heard the idea that land plants evolved from algal ancestors. Well, today we're going to be exploring that idea in a little bit more detail with a heavy focus on algae. Joining us to talk about this is PhD student Julia Van Etten. You may know her from her amazing science communication work under the name of couch microscopy. Using relatively inexpensive setups, Julia is hard at work bringing the microscopic world to reality and introducing people to an unseen diversity of organisms that contribute in a really big way to ecosystem function. So I don't wanna keep you from that any longer. Let's talk about the connection between algae and plants. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Julia Van Etten. I hope you enjoy. All right, Julia Van Etten, it's great to have you on the podcast. I'm a big fan of the work that you do. But before we really jump into what we're here to talk about today, how about we start off by telling everyone a little bit about who you are and what it is you do?
0: Okay, my name is Julia. Um, I'm a fourth-year PhD candidate in the Bhattacharya Lab at Rutgers University. I'm working on my PhD in ecology and evolution, and I study—I uh, mainly study a group of extremophilic red algae. Ooh. Um so this weird group of organisms that live in some interesting environments. And I study, you know, some processes related to like gene sharing and genome evolution in those algae.
1: Wow. And how did you come to wanting to study algae, I guess, but then extremophiles? I mean, was this something that you were always interested in growing up? Were you like looking at algae in ponds and going, this is what I want to do? Or is it something you kind of fell into sort of later through your education or career?
0: Um, I guess I sort of like slowly eased into it. Um, My undergraduate degree was in marine biology um, and I worked on some research as an undergrad studying like early animal, early metazoan evolution. Um, And that was really interesting to me. And then I thought like, well, I'm kind of more interested in like earlier than that um, and, as, <laughs> and as time went on I just kind of kept going earlier and earlier and then I kind of just stopped at like early eukaryote evolution which would be like extremophile eukaryotes and the red algae are pretty ancient eukaryotes
1: huh that's interesting because my novice mind here is extremophile and I'm like oh these are things that have like come on board later in the evolution of life you know it's taken a while to get there but actually when you put it in that context Earth was a pretty extreme place back in the day, right?
0: Yes. Yeah. So the first organisms ever were extremophiles. Hmm. Um, Earth was really hostile for like, I mean, I want to say like the first billion years of evolution. There were only prokaryotes like bacteria and archaea back then. But, you know, conditions are only habitable as we know it fairly recently.
1: Hmm. Wow. It's a lot to think about. And you know, obviously algae weren't the first forms of life, but they were still around pretty early, something photosynthetic, I'm guessing again. I'm a novice to this world, but you know, there's a lot of life within this this bin of eukaryotes and, and extremophiles. Why algae in particular?
0: Um, you know, I don't know. <laughs> That's
1: <laughs> <They're>, great. <laughs>
0: <they're>, <laughs> I've always just been interested in them. I I'm very interested in mechanisms of major evolutionary transitions. And so like one of the mechanisms that I'm particularly interested in is endosymbiosis. And so there's like a couple, you know, major times in evolutionary history when endosymbiosis has occurred and led to a new type of organism. And one of those times was the origin of algae.
1: Uh, So so I you know again this is early biology class for me but when I hear endosymbiosis I think of two organelles in particular the mitochondria and the chloroplast and and so for those that maybe haven't had a biology class in a long time what is endosymbiosis and why does it make algae what they are
0: So symbiosis is kind of is like a mutually beneficial association between two organisms and then if you throw in the endo prefix it basically just means that one organism is inside the other and so the first notable time that we know that that probably occurred was in the origin of eukaryotes which is when the mitochondria evolved Mm. so back you know probably over two and a half billion years ago we'll say
1: Um, Oh,
0: (laughs) there was, yeah, there was some sort of cell that was like a proto-eukaryote. Um, it was a member probably of the archaea domain and it possibly was able to engulf other cells somehow. Hmm. Um, there's a lot of different hypotheses about how this went on, but the gist is that the cell that evolved some level of complexity was very closely associated or engulfed a bacterial cell probably an alpha proteobacterium that was able to respire oxygen. Mm. And over time, that um, ingested bacterial cell, you know, transferred genes, to the nucleus of that new cell, which the nucleus was also a new thing. And basically, once it loses a certain number of genes, it can no longer live on its own. And it becomes a permanent fixture within the cell. And that's where the mitochondria came from. And Mm. so all eukaryotes have mitochondria. I mean, unless, some exceptions where they maybe lost the mitochondria.
1: Oh, biology.
0: Yeah, like a just a defining feature of eukaryotes is that at some point in history, they had a mitochondrion. And um, yeah, so that's one example of endosymbiosis. And so that was a really big deal because before that occurred, the only organisms on earth that we know of were bacteria and archaea, which hmm. um, are arguably kind of simpler organisms. And so... This kind of led to this new era of complexity.
1: Exciting.
0: And it also happened again in algae, which I can't (laughs) go into where algae came from. If you want to go open that can of worms.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So I guess it, it would, you know, when I hear algae again, I apologize. I'm a novice coming into this world. I, I generally kind of bin them all together, even though I know in the back of my head that there are different types of algae. But when I think of algae, I'm thinking of like the green stuff in the water on my aquarium, but also, you know, up to like the kelp that I've seen wash up on the West Coast. Uh, so, you know, you said you study red algae, and I guess that means there's a lot of different types of algae. And so I guess what makes an algae an algae first and foremost, and then how did that come about? And then why are there so many different kinds or what kind of different kinds of algae are there? I guess would be a better way of asking that.
0: Yeah. So this is a really good question. And I'll preface it by saying that the definition of what algae is kind of depends on who you ask. Ooh. But like the definition <laughs> that I subscribe to, I believe is like the most accurate and most like technical definition. Okay. Um, so it's gonna be kind of a long answer, but by all
1: means, take your time. I'm just
0: gonna start from the beginning. <laughs> Let's so basically, do it. so we just talked about the endosymbiotic event that led to eukaryotes. And on a similar time scale, like over two billion years ago, there was the evolution of cyanobacteria. And so so there's three groups of photosynthetic organisms on the planet. Hmm. Well, that I like to think about when okay. I textualize algae. So <laughs> the first is the cyanobacteria. And, and when I say photosynthesis, I mean, oxygenic photosynthesis, because there's like other photosynthesis that other bacteria do, but for the purposes of this conversation. Um, so there were cyanobacteria and so around, I think like 2.4 billion years ago or so they kind of like hit their stride and started photosynthesizing and producing enough oxygen that it sort of changed our atmosphere forever. Hmm. And that was called the great oxidation event. And so if you think about that and you think about the other endosymbiotic event, you can kind of picture the earth like 2 billion years ago, and there's like two main factions of organisms. There's the prokaryotes, which are bacteria, including cyanobacteria and archaea, and then there's the eukaryotes. And then like shortly after that, um, there was another really cool endosymbiotic event where a phagotrophic protist which is a protist is for this purpose, like an early eukaryote, it engulfed a cyanobacterium. And so in a similar process, what I discussed before, basically that cyanobacterial cell became a permanent fixture in that new protist cell. And so whatever protist ancestral protist that was, it's now able to photosynthesize because it captured this bacterial cell that could photosynthesize and kind of took some of its genes away and just made it Completely dependent on that host <laughs> cell, and so that organism is the ancestor of this clade called Archaeplastida, hmm. and Archaeplastida is what I think of as like true algae. Okay. So from that ancestral cell, three major lineages branched off, um, and that would be the red algae, the glaucophyte algae, and the green algae. Whoa. Yeah. So and. <laughs> And so that would be the second group of photosynthetic organisms. And so that's the algae and um, the red and glaucophyte algae are much more ancient. And the green algae, the green algal lineage is a little more, um, not a little more, it's like a billion years. Oh. more. And, <laughs> and from within that lineage, we get plants, which I know Ooh. we'll, we'll get it. Yeah,
1: yeah, we'll get there.
0: But there's also this third group of photosynthetic organisms on the planet that I, in like casual conversation, they are referred to as algae, but you know, they're not descendants of that Archeplastida monophyletic grouping. And okay. so those organisms, they're photosynthetic as well, but they obtained their plastid from a secondary or even tertiary endosymbiotic relationship with already evolved algae. What? And so- Yeah. So that there's some examples that you might be familiar with would be like diatoms, dinoflagellates, um, kelps, which are closely related to diatoms, um, euglenas, things like that. So basically there's a bunch of protists floating around. The protist like quote unquote kingdom is very, very diverse and underappreciated. And so there's a bunch of like random organisms from diverse lineages just minding their own business. Um, some of them are able to engulf other cells. They're phagotrophic and they ingest algae. And so if they're ingesting algal cells, they can ultimately retain those plastids in some cases. And that's what we see in diatoms and organisms like that. So I don't think of those as true algae. Huh. And I read, but but they are like functionally kind of like algae. And I've I read a couple papers that refer to them as meta algae. And so I, I really like that. I really <laughs> yeah. like that that term that's so yeah so like all of that is to say that there's cyanobacteria which are not algae they're bacteria they used to be called blue green algae Mm. um but that's a misnomer because they're not eukaryotes and so there's cyanobacteria there's the true algae the archaeplastida clade and then there's the meta algae which include all other photosynthetic um eukaryotes
1: wow biology
0: that's that's algae that's a i i would call that like a simplified explanation (laughs) of what algae is
1: no, I appreciate that. And I agree because I've I've kind of tried to go down this rabbit hole in the past. And you know, Wikipedia is usually a good jumping off point, right? Yeah. But it gets you lost. And I've never heard it so concise. And I get, you know, biology is this massive, messy gray area. And, and obviously, it's a very complex pathway to each of these processes. But I appreciate sort of the simplistic overview that you just gave us of billions of years of evolution. <laughs> Uh, that's really amazing. And so it's obviously there's what you just described is there's more than one way to make an algae. And that's what's also cool is, is evolution's truly not this hierarchical process where we're just getting these steps towards the ultimate right. organism. It is multiple ways and, and whatever succeeds, succeeds. And the fact that all of these lineages have extant members today just goes to show you this isn't a case of like primitive life. It might be like simplistic, like you said, quote unquote, in the context of like, Operation and complexity of body organization, but these are all true success stories in the evolutionary history of life.
0: Yes, and I also think in that vein, I think it's important to think about like the tree of life as the web of life. I know, like, and that's that's pretty commonplace now. Like, people call it that, but it's true because like all of those associations I just described, they're all chimeric. Like, we all of our cells are of chimeric origin. Every cell in our body evolved from a cell that was the result of a bacterial and archaeal cell combining and every photosynthetic organism other than cyanobacteria is the result of a similar association and and to that end if you go back further you know there's tons of gene sharing going on between prokaryotes there's tons of gene sharing between domains and, and that's something that I, I study in my research is horizontal gene transfer, which has actually a pretty big role in plant evolution, which we could talk about later on. But so there's just like, it's not a clean bifurcating tree of life. There's just a lot of weird, reticulate, backwards gene sharing and <laughs> eating of organisms that goes on.
1: <laughs> eating eating turned into something completely different and it's yeah. it's so wild to think about and you know these are the things that I at night will like be on the couch and it'll just hit you and you kind of like sit back and go like whoa we are a weird point along this line but <laughs> Mind blows aside, it's interesting to think of all the different forms of successful photosynthetic organisms, but at the core of all this is this process of photosynthesis, and you mentioned you study red algae, then there's green algae, and blue, we called them blue-green, but cyanobacteria, is it all the same form of photosynthesis? I mean, I realize that, like, in large extent, like, the umbrellas, they're all spewing out oxygen after taking in energy from the sun and CO2, but, like, what distinguishes, why is there sort of, like, this... I guess, color form distinguishing factor between the two? Is it meaningful or is it just a convenience of biology?
0: Um, It's pretty meaningful. So (laughs) I'm not a chemist, okay? but (laughs) photosynthesis is fairly, it's pretty well conserved because it's such an important redox type pathway. So the process itself is fairly well conserved. Um, The differences between these groups of algae and why they get their colorful names um, has to do with their pigmentation. And so if algae originated from, you know, an association with the cyanobacterial cell, like the first algae, their pigmentation was obviously much more similar to the ancestral cyanobacteria. And we see that. So red and glaucophyte algae are the most primitive branches of algae and they have chlorophyll A and phycobiliproteins, proteins and they store starch outside of the plastid. And those are Characteristics that are very similar to the state of the cyanobacterial photosynthetic situation. And then green algae have other pigments like carotenoids, chlorophyll A and B. Okay. So there's just differences in the pigments um that's probably a bad answer. No,
1: no, no, that's actually
0: You can edit that out if that's bad, but we No. Might to, we wanted to fact check that.
1: <laughs> I think it's a good place to start is just, you know, okay. we're we're not looking to dive into the chemistry here cuz I will yeah. quickly glaze over and Me get too. lost. <laughs> okay. But yeah, I it's it's cool to think of it is a conserved process because like you said it's super important, but it just it's reiterating this fact that there's or at least in the way I've understood it, it's reiterating the fact that there's a lot of different ways to be successful at this. But yes. what amazes me the most, and it's it's actually born out of Instagram accounts such as your own, is the size differentiation between sort of the the, the levels of even within these clades you know, we think of this amazing thing when you look at plants that have lineages that are herbaceous all the way up to tree-like, but, you know, most of what you're doing, at least in the social media realm of, of, you know, doing science communication and educating people on this is through a microscope, but then you can go to the beach and find very large, you know, with the naked eye, being able to see amazing details in these organisms, and so that, to me, is one of the biggest uh, amazements of just how successful this lifestyle can truly be, and I don't know if it's just you know, green and red algae that are able to do this sort of differences in organization of of body type. But it, it just, it's wild to think of how different, even within these clades, these organisms can truly be.
0: Uh, yes, definitely. And it just shows, like, if some sort of lifestyle strategy is successful, it just shows like the extent that organisms can radiate. Um, And then plants are a good example of that. And lots of different protist groups are, I mean, multicellularity has evolved dozens of times. It's only evolved to be like complex tissue bearing structures, I think like six times, which is like plants, fungi, animals, and various seaweeds. But yeah, I mean, like the morphological complexity you see, the size difference, it's pretty crazy. Like there's so many organisms, you know, that we never even like hear about. I, I do this all the time. Like I look at pond and ocean water and dirt and all sorts of stuff. And like, at least weekly, I am like, what is this? And I have to <laughs> reach out to people and figure out what I'm even looking at. And wow. there's so many undiscovered protists and just organisms in general. And they're weird.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: There's some really weird organisms
1: Yeah. There. I mean, I look at your posts and I'm just so in awe of of you and your colleagues, anyone that's able to look at these things and be like, oh, this is something. I mean, even to recognize that it's different, let alone get to the point where you're able to kind of separate it out without, you know, blasting it with some sort of gene sequencing technique and being like, no, that it is different, which I'm assuming factors into this in a big way. But, you know, it, it's so cool to think of even within the realm of the microscopic microcosmos to not sound too cheesy is just how many, how much niche space there is. And it just reminds you that we really are living in this like fractal universe of, of levels of complexity, but also, uh, you know, just as it is on land, as we experience it, it's just as much of a a, a safari (laughs) at the microscopic scale too.
0: Yeah. It's really interesting. I mean, I don't know how many years I would have to live to like understand a majority of it. But (laughs) um, I mean, I I helped create a module in my campus's microbiology lab on on protists. And in that course, they talk about like lifestyle, like how they get energy. They talk about ubiquity and like general microbiology terms. And so I was trying to, when I like wrote the PowerPoint and like wrote the course material, I was trying to like tie protists into those terms and parameters that the students are already familiar with and like just for lifestyle strategy for example I had to list like 20 different things and that's not <laughs> even all of them like right. these organisms they do they occupy really diverse um, niches and it, it's crazy it's crazy and and there's so many cryptic organisms that we're unfamiliar with or there's just a lot of honestly really weird stuff out there
1: <laughs> yeah it sounds like there needs to be an algae specific podcast or video series or something out there just to kind I of wish start i wish wish to- <laughs> Tearing apart this uh this this world in in a good way, um, yeah. but you know one of the reasons we connected over this is because there is this strong connection between at least the green algae and plant life, as in yeah. green algae. We wouldn't have plants if it wasn't for green algae, and this kind of brings to mind this idea of multicellularity that you brought up. And really, it was that step in the process of the green algae lineage, at least, that gave us what we know as the green world today. So. Is it true that green algae are really the true ancestors of all of the land plants that we see today or what we recognize as a plant?
0: Yes, so that is true. Cool. And so plants, land plants, embryophytes, whatever you want to call them. I don't know what you plant people, um, (laughs) what you plant people call them, but embryophytes or land plants are a monophyletic clade of organisms which means they all descend from one common ancestor and that ancestor came from the green algal lineage and so the green algae they're called chlorophyta there are two groups there's there was a major split very early in green algae evolution and there's the chlorophyte group and the streptophyte group okay and so within the streptophyte group there are the carophytes which is like a paraphyletic group of about six major lineages. And then there's the embryophytes, which are the land plants. And so there's been a lot of like study and debate on what's the sister group to land plants. And like, that's a really interesting story. But to answer your question, yes, plants are one lineage from within the streptophyte green algae.
1: Wow. Yeah, that to me is so interesting because you walk around and, you know, plants are more obvious to us oftentimes because we are terrestrial organisms and the the terrestrial realm is pretty much covered in plants all the time. But to think that at one point in time, they all sprung from this common ancestor that was an algae. And, uh, you know, when you start looking at this idea of how we classify them, you mentioned embryophytes. And so this gets down to sort of the reproductive phase. And one of the cool things that these early terrestrial plants brought with them was the, their mode of reproduction known as alternation of generations. And you can see this in extant plants today, like hornworts, mosses, ferns. But that's kind of, it, it, that wasn't new to these plants. That came over from algae, right? And, and that's still sort of similar, I'm guessing, in some respects.
0: Yes. So alternation of generations. There's actually alternation of generations in various multicellular algae, like red algae and oh. seaweed green algae. But red. Um, the alternation of generations in plants, it is something that I believe evolved in like the common ancestor of land plants, which means it was probably present in some form in some of these sister lineages of algae. But it's not something we actually see in the carophyte algae. I may have to double check on that, but I I believe that's the case. And so that kind of leads into this idea of like, what group of algae is most similar to land plants and most closely related to land plants, which has been a big question in algal biology. Hmm. And it has a really interesting answer, which (laughs) is there's this group of carophyte algae which include three lineages, the Carophyce, the Coliquidophice, and the Zagnamadophice. Hmm. And, and interest of me not having to repeat those hard names again. The first two groups I mentioned, um, <laughs> the first two groups I mentioned, they look a lot like land plants. Okay. They have like branching structures, they're filamentous, um, their cell walls look more similar to land plants. They have a lot of morphological characters that you would think So so the original hypothesis was that one of those lineages was the sister lineage to land plants. But then on comes this genome revolution Mm. and um, we're sequencing everything. And so there have been various research groups that have sequenced organisms from within this Zygmado clade. And these organisms don't really look like plants. They're mostly unicellular. They just don't look quite like plants. So no one suspected them as the sister group to plants. But when we Mm. look at their genomes, their genomes are much more similar to plant genomes. And it turns out that they probably share the most recent common ancestor with the embryophytes. But because those other two groups look so much like plants, it seems that the common ancestor of all of those groups likely had a lot of the features necessary for plants to become plants. Ah. But that maybe they did something different in freshwater. And when these organisms migrated onto the land, the proteins encoded by those genes were maybe co-opted for a new like land specific function. And so that group, the zygnomatophysy algae, they, some of them are fairly terrestrial. They're Hmm. mostly freshwater, but they look very simple. And it seems like they kind of went on their own trajectory where they lost some of those genes and simplified, whereas the plants got very complex.
1: Wow. Yeah, I mean, that in and of itself, again, reiterates this idea that evolution is not this hierarchical process. You don't start with an algae and they're like we're working towards becoming a plant. Right, <laughs> it can happen right. a lot of different ways. And and sometimes that means simplification. Uh, branch yep. goes off and, and that's just showing just what works, works. And if it means becoming simple, finding a niche that works for that simplicity, then that's what's going to happen. And then some other lineage became closer to what we have with land plants but of these three lineages of algae lifestyle wise i mean how are they living you mentioned there's some that are fairly terrestrial but like what are they most tied to aquatic systems mostly freshwater i mean where would you go looking for these and what kind of niches are they carving out uh in their own world i mean broad strokes obviously there's probably a lot of complexity in there
0: all carophyte algae are basically freshwater um and so those specific groups those are freshwater algae they they Did colonize land to some extent, because if you live in like a pond or something, you're going to have to go like experience fluctuating moisture levels um, and some of the challenges that come to living on land. But they are mainly freshwater organisms.
1: Okay. That's cool. It's nice to know that, you know, whereas life probably started in the ocean, plants got their start in the freshwater. So shout out to the ponds, the rivers, the streams, the springs.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Those are my favorite places to look for cool microbes anyway.
1: So nice. Yeah. I mean, I can, the ocean gets a lot of play, but yeah, we gotta, we gotta love the freshwater ecosystems, especially I'm sure some of these like, not to say backwater is in a bad term, but like these little ponds tucked into different places sort of isolated from the environment, I would assume that are harboring some really interesting diversity of these groups and more.
0: Yes. Yeah. There's some really interesting stuff and it just depends. You've got to just find a weird, yeah, random pond somewhere. And those, those random ponds you happen upon on like a hike or even just like driving. I've, I've taken a water sample from, like, a random puddle on the side of the road and found, like, ridiculous stuff in it, so...
1: Gives yeah. you, it gives you hope in a weird way.
0: <laughs> it does, it does.
1: So one of the cool things that really kind of opened my mind to the world of freshwater algae and how complex they can be is a friend of mine was doing a lot of saning doing a lot of like aquatic work, looking for mm-hmm. macroinvertebrates along the shore of Lake Erie. And they kept pulling up these weird structures that looked like eggs with a very spiral sort of ridge along them. And we were like racking our brains trying to figure out what they were. And then one day we were walking through the biology department. Someone had a poster, I think it was of Cara, the algae Cara. And they were like, oh, this is their weird little reproductive structure, like a seed almost. So there was almost like this precursor of what we would recognize, but I forget what they called it, like a macro gametophyte or something like that. And so when you mentioned that the structure and form of these things were similar, but maybe not necessarily related...
0: So, so the alternation of generation in plants, there's haploid and diploid right, stages. Right. right. So in algae, the closer the algal group is related to plants, you kind of get systems that look sort of like that. But I don't think in the carophytes you see true alternation of generations. But in the Zygnomatophyce, there are algae that they're haploid for almost all of their lives, but they do undergo a type of sexual reproduction where they do form like a diploid, I guess, like a spore, like a zygospore, like a little sporophyte type thing. So there is a transition there. Like there, there is some transition in like very early pre-plant algal history where there's not just asexual reproduction anymore and there's some sort of like diploid stage zygote type thing being formed
1: okay yeah because again when i think of evolution and sort of these rapid radiations into the wild diversity that we see i think of swapping of genes but you mentioned there's also horizontal gene transfer there's a lot of different ways you can get these new mutations trading genes new things coming on board in lineages that didn't have them pretty much you know overnight when it comes to horizontal gene transfer right
0: Yeah. So horizontal gene transfer, I mean, I'm biased because I do study this, (laughs) but I mean, I think that horizontal gene transfer and as we sequence more genomes, we're going to learn that it plays a big role in many transitions. Um, And and we're seeing that like the more genomes that become available, the more we are seeing that. Um, We see that in the red algae that I study that live in like these crazy conditions of like high temperature, low pH, they can Detoxify arsenic and mercury. Like, I don't know if the ancestral red algal cell could do that. Mm. Um, But so, yeah. And so when these research groups sequenced these genomes of members of the Zygnomatophysae and kind of discovered them to be probably the sister to land plants, they also found some genes that they were originally only seen in land plants. So they thought, oh, maybe these were novel genes that you know, arose in land plants somehow, but now they're seeing them in these algae. And when you do phylogenetic type analysis on them, you see that they're in plants, they're in this lineage of algae, and then they are homologous to soil bacterial genes or fungal genes. And so there seems to be quite a bit of horizontal gene transfer. That seems to have conferred sort of beneficial adaptations to plants that allow them to colonize land better.
1: Okay that's an interesting idea and uh, again showing my bias and how ignorant i am to this realm is like i hear algae and i'm instantly like aquatic ecosystems but shout out to my friend jesse allen who posted a picture the other day that again made me think of that in a deeper way where she showed a lichen with and without its algal partner i'm like oh yeah lichens are terrestrial they have to partner with an algae of some sort that must be living on land and so when you think of extremophiles and that leap through evolutionary time to living on land i would guess that You know going from water to land that was an extremophile jump because land is definitely not the same environment as the aquatic environment
0: definitely yeah i always like to think like i call the algae i study extremophiles or poly extremophiles because the context in which i study them is like for a nasa project and we talk about like habitable Hmm. worlds and things like that but the term extremophile is a very relative term Hmm. It really is like whatever you make of it. And yeah, I mean, there are so many challenges to life on land that this like plant ancestor would have had to overcome that it probably is an extreme environment. And we do see in these transitions to extreme environments that there seems to often be these horizontal gene transfers that kind of help the process along a little bit.
1: So apologies if you do not have the answer to this and we can strike it from the record if so. But uh, do we have any indication as to what these genes were and where they might have come from? Like, who were they swapping genes with that might have got this process started? Or is it just so much has been integrated and lost through evolutionary time that it's hard to pinpoint?
0: So what we do. So oh. in general, you see probably more horizontal gene transfer between organisms that are physically in close contact. Okay. But obviously we don't know what was in contact with what, you know, 500 million years ago right. when plants kind of evolved. So, But we know that some of these putative HGTs come from like soil bacteria, which makes sense, but were they soil bacteria back then? Probably Mm. not because was there soil? Probably not because (laughs) we needed plants with roots to make soil and (laughs) fungi and whatnot. So um, but what we now know as soil bacteria, there seems to be donations from those organisms, but it's also hard to say, like you were saying, because, you know, maybe viruses transfer genes Mm. from like completely random organisms to a new organism. Um, But we also, like, we do know that some of these genes encode functions, like, related to responses to drought and desiccation. Um, We know that some of them have roles in, like, phytohormone signaling that kind of allow the plant to adapt to its environment better. Like, we we do have some idea of what these genes do. A lot of them are transcription factors. And so, like I was talking about before with um, maybe some genes encoding functions in the aquatic environment that were co-opted for a new function in a terrestrial environment. um, If you're getting horizontal transfer of transcription factors, like that could play a role in those acceptation type traits, because like maybe the gene regulation is changing and maybe the gene regulation changing is all you need for a function to change in an environment. So, there's like a lot at play in plant evolution. Like it's a really good case study for a transition that involves like so many different mechanisms of evolution, right. which is probably the case for all, all transitions. But I just I find it really fascinating how many fun little, you know, textbook definitions yeah. come back to play when you, when you read up on this stuff.
1: Yeah. Right. You're hitting these like important bullet points of sort of the study sheet of evolutionary dynamics.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I feel like I'm like teaching a class or something.
1: (laughs) It's good though. I mean, it really helps put this stuff into context and and it's so many great teachable moments that you can kind of hook people with all along the way. But, you know, this could again, just be a bias of, of my way of thinking about it. But it makes sense to me that given what you just outlined in sort of these, not necessarily like stepwise, but the, the processes that had to happen, that these things were going on in freshwater environments. Because if there's one thing I think about of like growing up with ponds or puddles or rivers, even water levels change and fluctuate quite a bit. And so these organisms that were once cozy and comfortable living in an aquatic environment can quickly, even today, find themselves stranded on land. And it's cool to think about, you know, maybe it was just thousands and millions of years of that repetition of just like, okay, this group successfully had this accident happen, which allowed them to live a little bit longer when the water levels dropped. I mean, again, this could be oversimplifying it, but it's it's neat to kind of put that in the context of, okay, wait, maybe why was it that it was freshwater systems that that produced this?
0: Yeah, no, it's really interesting. And, and it probably was like somewhat stepwise because there are like transitional environments between freshwater areas and totally terrestrial areas. But then when you're in a terrestrial area, you also have rain. And once there is soil, you have waterlogged soil and mm. flooding and things like that. And I think like one of the important things to think about is that there's no perfect environment. Like there's there's pros and cons to every environment and every organism that wants to not go extinct has to adapt to those pros and cons. And I think there are a lot of pros and cons to terrestrialization for plants. And clearly they overcame those challenges because they've radiated in an insane way across the planet um, in a way that algae hasn't. Like there are terrestrial algae, but they're not as numerous as plants. They haven't exploited like three-dimensional space (laughs) like plants have, right? yeah, so I think it's like really interesting how like this one group of organisms was able to overcome some of these
1: challenges. Yeah, I mean, hard selection and then the competitive advantages that come with it. Yeah. You know, like you can start to truly put into context how quickly or you know, relatively quickly plants pretty much took over the terrestrial world, but then even some of them, like whales, returned to the aquatic environment. Uh, and it's, it is yeah. it is kind of funny to look into my aquarium and see some of my plants uh, being overrun by algae, and it's almost like, ha-ha, you're back in our realm, <laughs> kind of thing. <laughs> Not to say it again, but it is it is interesting to see these two organisms interacting with each other. But going back to what you just said, there are terrestrial algaes today. I mean, our landlords cut a bunch of bushes really too hard in my opinion in front of our house and there's algae on our siding i mean they are still conquering some really interesting environments and i'll never forget going to uh this this rock city we called it It was just these giant sandstone boulders chilling out in a forest and they're always wet and full of uh liverworts and lichens and all that but there was this great like fuzzy orange stuff that turned out to be algae so it's not to say they've not done it uh they haven't done it quite like plants have but it's cool to think that there are terrestrial algaes too
0: yeah algae are so cool they've done it in their own way so you know every organism that's alive today complex or not has survived the same amount of evolutionary time so (laughs) they're equally successful and like i was saying before with the zagnamato they kind of their ancestor was probably a little more complex and plant-like but this lineage kind of went the opposite direction and sort of streamlined its genome and streamlined um, some of its like morphological features. But that's worked out for it because it's a very specious group of algae. Plants kind of did the opposite thing. Plants exploited a completely new environment and like I just am so fascinated by trees. Like algae yeah. couldn't have done that. Algae are tiny little cells. Like they couldn't grow, you know, tens of meters high or hundreds of meters high or however big trees are. Um, and and yeah, there are a lot of algae, and many of which are on land, and there's a ton of plants on land um and fungi. And I don't never want to forget fungi. I don't know sure. that much about it, <laughs> but I know it's kind of like protists where people ignore it too much. So Shout out to the fungal people.
1: Yeah. <laughs> That's another group I have a ton of respect for just to, because yeah. of the complexities and how difficult it can be. Like sometimes I'm like, oh, I'm going to start paying attention to them. And then you find a bunch of little brown mushroom caps, and someone goes, oh, you have to put them down and look at the spores. And sometimes you even have to look at them under microscopes. And I'm like, I, oh, oh, I'm out of my element. <laughs>
0: I've had some similar experiences. Yeah. Fungi is so interesting. I feel like. You know, collectively, we know so little about it, but I'm sure it. like, I mean, I know it plays an important role. It plays an important role in soil and in plant symbiosis, but that's kind of as far as my knowledge goes.
1: Yeah. Appreciation, (laughs) but not uh, in-depth knowledge, but that's okay. You know, we only have one lifetime to live and sometimes you just pick what you uh, really like and what sparks the fire. And speaking of which, I mean, you're obviously going to be sparking some interest in our conversation today because it's very obvious how passionate you are about this. You're not only doing this, you know, professionally as an academic, you're helping teach people both in classes as well as for free on the internet with your social media accounts, which again, this is, it's so cool to scroll through your feed. I recommend everyone stop and go like your account right now. But one of the best ways to appreciate some of these things truly is through the microscope, because as much as that like fuzz on the rock or the green growing on some of the leaves in my aquarium is interesting from the macro scale. When you put it under magnification, you truly open up a whole new world of discovery. So what, I mean, you have to do it professionally, but what got you into sort of the microscopic realm of just the beauty and interest and in, in using that as a teaching tool to get others interested in this?
0: Um. Well, I don't, I kind of think of like my Instagram account as more of like an art project. Plug yourself like, too. I,
1: what is it? How how can they find you? Real oh, quick?
0: okay. So it's um on Instagram. It's at... Couch underscore microscopy. Perfect. Um, <laughs> and I have a Twitter too. But I don't really use that. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> but you can follow me on there too. <laughs> but um, I took like a couple years between undergrad and grad school. There's a lot of stuff going on in my life. Good and, move. Good move. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And um, uh, in that time, at one point, I just I don't know. I like missed doing science. Like I knew I was going to grad school for science, but I just like wasn't really like doing much. And I just like bought a $300 microscope one day. And I will say like to go off on a tangent, like (laughs) there's, there's a very large community of like hobby microscopists and many of them are very nice, but it is like, you know, a group who like to just make people feel bad sometimes. And um,
1: (laughs) wrong. (laughs) That's not okay.
0: Yeah. There's nothing wrong with a $300 microscope. And To which I say, like, I think microscopy is a fairly accessible hobby. Obviously, not everyone is $300. But, like, you could talk to people online who are like, you need $20,000 to do this. Absolutely not. I am at the point, I refuse to buy a nicer microscope. Like, I'm going to (laughs) keep using this $300 one forever. I'm also not made of money. But so anyway, I bought this microscope. And, you know, I miss looking at organisms under the microscope. Like, I did that a lot in college. And I really enjoyed it. And so I just started like fooling around with it, going to ponds and just kind of going from there. And it's one of those hobbies, like I think any sort of person who's involved in any sort of naturalist endeavor kind of catches the bug of like, I need to find this one or like, I need to like catalog these things. And over time, you just kind of learn what stuff is. And I personally gravitate towards like the pretty symmetrical things and i know that that's you know instagram people like that too but there's some crazy stuff you see and um it just turned into a really fun hobby and you know the fact that i study algae and protists in my research it it allows me a lot of time to combine the two so sometimes work is very fun
1: nice that's good always work is always fun but (laughs) that's so cool yeah and and again just from the novice perspective, looking at your account and the posts you put up, it is visually stunning, but you also combine that with really interesting natural history and and context for these these observations. I mean, I've done some microscopy with far less than $100, and you know, I can't quite see what you're seeing, but even that unlocks a whole new world of, of tiny moving things that you didn't even know were there. And what's neat is you don't necessarily need to know what you're looking at to appreciate it. But, like, the thing that amazes me the most is that I can go out with a key, look for the plants. I kind of find the habitats I want to poke around in and know that I'm probably going to find this subset. Is it the same for going out and looking in, like, do you know it's like, okay, this is a pond not attached to a river. This is a bog. This is more of a puddle type thing. I mean, how... Is there sort of like habitat preferences uh, is, or is it just so complex it's hard to really say? I mean, when you go out, you said you have goals sometimes. You'll say like, I want to find this thing. Do you know where you have to go looking for that?
0: No, no. I mean, like there's definitely like if you do your reading, you can definitely zero in on some locations if you really want to find something. But I don't really do that. Like I have things like abstractly that I want to find and okay. hopefully one day I'll happen to upon them. Um, <laughs> But yeah, it's funny because I get a lot of messages on Instagram. Like, can you post this? Can you find this? I'm like, are you kidding me? (laughs) Like, do you know how many? First of all, to put it into context, like I can go to a pond and collect a jar of water. I can only look at one drop at a time from (laughs) that jar. So how many drops are in a jar? How many jars can I get from a pond? And how many ponds are there? And then there's the ocean. So like, so yeah, I mean, you can make educated guesses on like where to find things. And like, there are ponds that I've been to many times where I'm like, I know there are Desmids in that pond. Uh I know there's Hydras in that pond probably. And during certain times of year things bloom. And like, so yeah, like you can have an idea of what you're going to find, but most of the time I'm just like very surprised. Or sometimes I find the same stuff over and over and get really bored. And then one day I'll take one drop of water and there's a whole new thing I didn't expect. So you can't do too much planning. <laughs> but I think that's the fun of it because you can just find like some really bizarre things. And and again, like I find things all the time. I have no idea what they are.
1: That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, at its base level, it is true discovery on an individual level. I mean, like you just described is so cool. I never really thought about the your process of putting this stuff together. Is 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 literally, are you just going out grabbing a jar? or a baggie or some sort of container to bring back a few samples. And then you just kind of in your spare time, sit there, put a drop on a slide, throw it in and see what happens.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's pretty much it. Like other people have like probably better equipment and better Processes for doing this, I feel like I'm kind of lazy about it, but I think that served me well because I think it's just like I do it very casually. Yeah. Like, have, like I've always have a couple jars in my car or whatever, and <laughs> wherever I am, I'll take a jar. I have a plankton net, I don't always use it, and whenever I get a chance, you know, I'll just look through the jar when I get home or when I have time. And sometimes I don't feel like doing microscopy, and I put the jar in the sun on like in one of my windows and then, you know, random stuff will bloom and you kind of just let the ecosystem of that jar take over and you'll find weird and interesting things that maybe you wouldn't have found on the first day because maybe those things weren't blooming. So I, so I think it's actually kind of good to be lazy about it and just kind (laughs) of see what happens. Um, I think if you go into it, like wanting to find something specific, you're like always going to be disappointed. But there's just so much biodiversity out there. And, and I really, I think it's important that people are made aware of it because, totally. you know, we, we see plants and animals. We're most familiar with plants and animals, but plants and animals are each one tiny little clade <laughs> on the much larger web of protist life. And there's so many kingdom level protist like groups of protists out there. They're so under surveyed, they're so understudied. So I guess this is my rant I go on all the time. So there's so many organisms we don't know about. There's so many organisms I don't know about. There's so many organisms humanity doesn't know about, but they're out there. They're waiting to be sequenced, they're waiting to be imaged.
1: Hell yeah. And that's why people like you and your efforts are so vital, because you are showing people an unseen world. And it's, you know, we could get as cheesy as we want about how mind blowing and amazing and just like the good feels we get from doing it. But yeah, when you think of the biosphere and biodiversity loss and the state of ecological uh, chaos that we're entering into and, and have been for a while, I think it was David Attenborough that said, you know, if the big stuff disappeared overnight, the world would largely tick on just fine. But if those microbial life, all of these organisms we've talked about and more that unseen diversity were to disappear, things would come crumbling down around us. I mean, not just our way of life, like all ways of life.
0: Yeah. And I think that I think about that a lot. And I think it's like very humbling (laughs) to think about because we are worried about biodiversity loss and that's usually plants and animals. And those things are really important. Those are like predators and those regulate the ecosystem. And that is of course, important, but you know, if we want like humanity to survive, like obviously like plants and animals are important for humanity, but if we like take humanity out of the equation, I think the planet will probably be fine. I can't imagine something that's going to wipe out all the microbes. Right. So, and like the microbes were there way before us. Like humans (laughs) are very new. Humans and plants are new. Plants are only 500 plus million years old. I mean, algae are billions of years old. Prokaryotes are like even older than that, so I just think it's really—it just puts a lot of stuff into perspective. Like hurting, if we hurt the planet, we're mostly hurting ourselves and things that look like us and things that we deal with on a daily basis. So, like, if we want to like stop biodiversity loss, like we're helping ourselves, and that's really good. But there's so many things that don't really care about us that probably would do better <laughs> if we weren't here. Which is kind of grim. That's a very grim thing to say. Yeah, but well, I think about it a lot. <laughs> yeah.
1: Uh, As do I. And it, uh, you know, we are a testament to destructive forces. But (laughs) with this in mind, I mean, some of the best ways to get people fired up about this stuff and get them excited is for them to see it themselves. And of course, Your account, Couch Microscopy, is a great way to do that. But if people listening get fired up and kind of want to take the next step, you mentioned you don't have to have a ton of money. You don't have to have the best equipment, which I love. I love people that spout that because gear nuts can get really frustrating and can be kind of bad for the hobby overall. But if people want to just dip their toe in the water basic setup, what level of magnification are we talking about? And where do they want to go looking for equipment just to even start seeing this stuff, let alone, you know, taking pictures and really diving into this, this world of diversity?
0: Yeah. So there are a lot of little phone microscopes and like smaller microscopes that are like very inexpensive that you can take into the field and look at stuff. I don't have a ton of experience with those. Those don't do super high magnification, but I know people who really like those mm-hmm. things, and you can see like little ciliates and things like that in a pond sample with those. But I personally, my microscope is from AmScope, which I I really recommend it. I kind of just randomly bought it, but this <laughs> company has a lot of microscopes from like you know seventy five dollars to like thousands of dollars. Nice. But. My microscope was about 300 bucks and it does up to a thousand times magnification Dang. and it does dark field. There's like, it comes with its own little dark field condenser, which like refracts the light in a way that like makes things appear on a black background, which I really like.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, And I think you could take really pretty pictures that way. So like Amscope is a good place to start. There's another brand called like Omax. My microscope, it's a T. 340 b that's what i'm always telling people if they want want to get the one i have but then i also i bought a camera from that company as well as like 200 and and it's a camera that fits right into like the trinocular port of the microscope because i'm lazy (laughs) but other people i know tons of people who prefer to just get an, an adapter for their iphone and stick it into one of the ocular lenses and that works just as well nice um so like it is like, obviously I'm not acting like $500 or $300 isn't a lot, but I do think like, if you really want to get into this hobby, it is attainable. There are ways to do it for cheap. And like, don't listen to people who tell you, you need like some fancy microscope. Like I've used fancy microscopes in labs I've worked in and they're awesome. But like, I feel like I take pretty good pictures on my couch with this $300 microscope. So oh, yeah, I think, and I think anyone can, like, I don't think I'm like gifted at microscopy. There's only so much you can do. You focus on the thing and take a picture of it. So, <laughs> so I think, I think really anyone can do this if they were interested.
1: No, and it sounds like, you know, whatever your budget is, there's a way to enter into this hobby and work your way up to whatever level you want to take it to. And that's what's great is it. there's more than one way to do it, just like there's more than one way to make an algae and evolve a plant. Of
0: course, yeah.
1: Yeah, and that's what's great is that this is stuff you can do in your own home. And it also sounds like you don't need to live in a pristine environment or near one to find really cool things. You mentioned finding stuff in puddles on the side of the road, which to me should be the most restrictive habitat type on the planet.
0: I would say it's much better to not live in a pristine environment. (laughs) The best places to find algae and weird stuff is like if it smells bad, if there's like, if it smells, if you smell like sulfur or Mm. something, that's a good sign. Like, or if there's just like a mat, if anything that looks like slime or sludge, even dirt, I mean, literally soil, so fascinating. You put a few drops of water in soil and leave it for a few minutes and then look at that under the microscope. You're going to see stuff crawling around. You're going to see ciliates nematodes all sorts of stuff algae so like oh yeah you want to find like gross and you know the most pristine water is going to have the least amount of stuff Hmm. you want like blooming stuff and obviously we all hate pollution but you know sometimes all this like gross horrible agricultural runoff leads to algal blooms and if you catch the bloom before it dies you can find some cool algae in there too so it's a bad environment actually
1: noted that's uh, (laughs) yeah (laughs) Yeah, I get a little squeamish, but yeah, I have I can attest to the algal load in some of these farm ditches. It's uh, it's tough on the nose, but I'm sure there's some interesting life in there. It is tough on
0: the nose. Oh, sometimes I'll open a jar. Ugh. I'll leave a jar on my window for like a week or two and I'll open it and I'll like, yeah, it's really <laughs> disgusting. <laughs> or sometimes there'll be insect larvae in the jar that I don't know about and I'll open the jar a couple oh. weeks later and bugs will fly Fun. out. That's happened to me a few times. So always on your toes. And if you're doing it in your living room, it's not really fun for bugs (laughs) to fly out. Yeah, (laughs)
1: yeah. It all comes with the territory. I mean, even some of the stuff, I'll go and get uh, plants from the aquarium shop that were obviously grown up in a pond in Florida somewhere. And then, you know, in a few days, you'll look and be like, how did that get in there? There's something swimming around. And it's just, it's wild how much life can be tucked into such a small area. And there's so many levels of discovery awaiting people. But if they want to take you know, a more educated dive into this and see some, uh, what you have been able to do again, plug yourself. If people want to learn more about the research you're doing and all of the work and and just the outreach that you do, I'm really impressed by it. I'm I'm really happy to finally get you on and talk to you about it, but where do you recommend they go looking?
0: I would just say like in general, if you're going to take up this as a hobby or in your career, like the best way to learn about this stuff is literally just to do it. Like there isn't a great textbook. There's, there are some field guides, but like they're expensive or they're not so great. Like just do it. There's Facebook groups, there's Instagram accounts, there's like communities you can find on Twitter and whatnot. Nice. Um, but I would just say just do it and just kind of like over time, you're gonna just absorb information, <laughs> learn how to identify stuff, like which isn't great advice, but like that's how I did it. That's the only advice I have. But in terms for like plugging myself, yeah. obviously there's Instagram, so at couch underscore microscopy. Um, Twitter, I'm thinking I'm just at couch microscopy. I also have a website. Couchmicroscopy.com. Nice. I mean, you can find me on like research date or whatever. The I'm in the Bodhicharya lab at Rutgers, and um everyone in my lab is also very interested in algae. Um, my PI Divashish Badacharya, he, you know, he's like a leading algal expert. Nice. So he's very cool. I mean, I guess if you're interested in looking into my lab, we publish a lot of papers. I yeah. don't know. Yeah, so that's good. And and not just my Instagram account, there's a lot of really cool like protists and algal focused Instagram accounts um, that you could find.
1: So just search in some keywords there. Yeah, and yeah just, just seeing, browse. Yeah.
0: Just do like hashtag, you know, Hans or something. I don't know. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. It, it, awesome. And I'll save everyone the trouble and put up those relevant links so they can find them cool. directly. But Julia, this has been an amazing and fascinating dive into this world. And I realize you took a lot of really complex and deep subjects and made them very easy to understand and digestible. But it's a great jumping off point for people that want to learn more and, and get connected to a largely unseen and under definitely underappreciated world. So thank you so much for taking time to talk with us.
0: Thank you for having me. This is really fun. Good.
1: I'm glad. Well, hang in there, stay healthy and keep up all of the amazing science communication and actual science work that you're doing. It is so vital and, and you're really exploring some important walks of life
0: right back at
1: you thanks all right well (laughs) take care and cheers (laughs) all right that does it for this episode what an awesome insight into the connection between algae and plants and I mean it when I say please go check out all of the amazing social media work that she does couch microscopy is one of my favorite Instagram accounts it's also a website you can go over to the show notes at indefenseplants.com podcast and find direct links for all of those it's incredible work and you learn so much in the process and it's just aesthetically beautiful the microscopic world is full of so much complexity and unfortunately, with the weakness of our eyes, we generally can't see this stuff. So I really thank Julia for taking the time to do it and share it with everyone, but also encouraging people to go out and buy these sorts of things so that they can themselves discover a world unseen. If you want to make sure that episodes like this can continue to happen, the best way to do that is to become a patron over at patreon.com slash indefense of plants. The financial support of all of my patrons each and every month ensures that this show can continue coming out each and every week for free. I mean it when I say I couldn't be doing this without them. Speaking of which, I have a shout out to two new producers on this podcast. A big thank you goes out to Michael and Silas. Both of them went over to patreon.com slash plants and signed up at the producer credit level. So they are getting all of the kickbacks you can possibly get over there, including access to multiple bonus episodes each and every month. So if you want to keep this conversation rolling and ensure that In Defense of Plants has a future, please consider becoming a patron today. You can also pick up stickers over at indefensibleplantscom shop, my book, In Defense of Plants, an exploration into the wonder of plants wherever books are sold, and merch at our Teespring account. All of those links and every other link that I encourage you to click on can be found at indefensibleplantscom slash podcast. But that is it for me this week. Of course, thank you all for listening. Make sure you hit that subscribe button. But most importantly, get outside and stay healthy. Until next week, this is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.